Hey, welcome to the Africa Podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. So today's episode features one of our Meze Nights. Let me tell you a little bit about what that means. This is part of our community presentation series. This is where we take four members of the community who are curious about four different topics, and they present what we call an Afikta Forward. That's where they forward an idea to the rest of the community, give a recommendation for something that they should check out. To be clear, none of these people are experts in their topics, but they're just very curious, and we're looking to explore something new. The four presentations come from Hamad Tasabahji, Tamara Amin, Dalia Dandashi, and Batul Khalifi. This was originally recorded on October 3rd. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everybody. My name is Mikey Mhanna. I'm really happy to have you guys on this call. Um, today is one of our Meze nights where we have four short Africa forwards, um, all sort of squeezed into the same evening. Um, if you love Africa and you want to support us, uh, we have a small team in Beirut that does this full time. Um, and if you want to have this grow, and support us, please consider supporting us through monthly contributions on Patreon. Um, that would be great. Okay, Mo, take it away. All right. So my name is Mohamed Tassabeji, I'm based in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm actually a civil engineer, but today I'm going to be talking about architecture in Lebanon and the Lebanese house during the 18th and the 19th century. Um, so the book that I'm going to be talking to you guys about, uh, that's a picture of the cover of the book. I have it right here with me. Um, and there's a link to buy it on Amazon if you'd like to after this uh, fabulous presentation. Um, so the book was written by a gentleman called Frederick Raggett. Uh, he was an Austrian architect and he taught architecture at AUB, the American University of Beirut. Um, so he taught at AUB since 1964. The book was published in 1974. So it is dated. Um, but the nice thing about it is um, they basically chronicle and capture a lot of Lebanese architecture back in the day that we've lost since then. Ironically, he wrote the book um, as a call to arms. He was basically trying to wake the Lebanese up and let them know that they had awesome architecture and it should be preserved. Um, and he was hoping this would inspire them. Uh, this was 56 years ago and we've lost a lot since then. But uh, ironically, that's why it started. Uh, so the book's divided into several sections. Um, I won't be able to tell you guys about all of them today, uh, but the first two are what I'm going to focus on. Uh, so the author starts off talking about factors that influence architecture in Lebanon, what makes it uniquely Lebanese. Then he talks about the different types of houses um, and as they evolve. Again, this is the 18th and the 19th century. So we don't talk about uh, the French uh, uh, foreign influence or anything uh, modernist or postmodernist. Um, then he gets into element of domestic architecture. He talks about the triple arch. He talks about windows, doors, um, all that jazz. Um, we won't be able to get to that. Though. Um, and then he critiques the architecture and he offers an epilogue at the end. Okay, uh, so to start off, um, influencing factors. There are several factors that the author discusses. I have only handpicked three that I wanna kind of highlight because I think they're really interesting. The first one is geography and history. Um, so Lebanon's on the crossroads of East and West. Um, we, we've always been, um, that's always been the case for Lebanon, which means there's emperors, kings, rulers, pharaohs, whoever you may want that's coming through and establishing Lebanon as part of their sphere of influence. Uh, and with that, you get a lot of stuff that's basically imported. Um, but the important thing is it's always adapted based on what works in Lebanon and what doesn't work in Lebanon. So what works in Lebanon, what doesn't work? Uh, Lebanon has two mountain ranges, as uh, most people know. There's Mount Lebanon, and then it runs north and south, and then parallel to it is the anti-mountain Lebanon range. Um, both of those basically create environments that are difficult to build on because it's steep. It's not flat open spaces like our neighboring countries. Um, 
these two mountains are also predominantly layers of sandstone and limestone. Um, and that literally becomes the building blocks for the buildings that we'll see. Um, the sandstone is the beautiful tan color stone that we see um, in most of the domestic architecture. And then finally, the socioeconomic reasons uh, for how architecture develops in, in the country. Um, so there's, there was two, several, two, two groups in, in Lebanon, uh, one that was uh, commercial traders, uh, folks who basically dwelled in the coastal towns, and then more agricultural activity with mountain dwellers uh, who lived in the steep mountains that are difficult to get to, difficult to build in, um, uh, that we'll see how that affects uh, the architecture. So we'll start off with the first type of house, and this is the most basic type of house. Uh, he calls this the closed rectangular house. So this is a house that exists from prehistoric times. Uh, it's, it's a square house that eventually with time starts getting larger and larger, more rooms, uh, more space to dwell in. Uh, it's a stone foundation, so stones that they carve up, um, they put as a strong foundation, and then they use timber posts to basically create the walls. Um, the walls are infilled with pebbles, uh, loose rocks, and then are held together with uh, a clay mortar. Uh, with time, the clay mortar becomes brick and it becomes more and more sophisticated. The one thing that's uniquely Lebanese about this house compared to our, the neighboring countries is Lebanon is relatively lush compared to uh, Palestine, Syria, and the countries uh, neighboring us, which basically means we can build cheap uh, roofs uh, that are light and easy to build, whereas neighboring countries you'll see a vaulted structure or a stone roof. The next house that uh, the author talks about is the gallery house. And this is just a, log a logical extension of the rectangular house. So the gallery um, is basically a corridor. So it, if you look at the, at the drawing in the center, it's basically showing you how you have a, cor a, a corridor with a colonnade that connects several rooms. And there's several permutations of basically how that looks. The thing that makes the gallery house unique in Lebanon is because you're on steep mountain terrain, um, you can put that gallery externally as opposed to internally. So if you lived in a city where it was flat and all your neighbors were kind of facing each other, you would not want the gallery facing outside. You'd create a courtyard and you put the gallery facing inward so that your neighbors who are walking past wouldn't peep and look at you. Uh, in this case, in Lebanon, that's not the case. You can make it outside facing to look at the valley, to look at the sea. And if you look at the example on the right, the Lebanese example basically uses the first floor, the rectangular house with a vaulted ceiling as a stable, as a kitchen, the second floor, which is the residence, has the gallery that looks out to the slope. The third type of house um, is called the Liwan house, or what he calls the courthouse. Um, so the word Liwan is a Persian term uh, that means open space. Um, this house was imported to Lebanon. It was brought to Lebanon by the Arabs. Um, the concept of this house is you have three sides. Uh, if you can follow my cursor on the bottom left-hand side, you have three sides that are closed and one side that's open. Um, and they believe that this came from Bedouin architecture that basically wanted to enclose three sides, keep one side open to the wind. Again, we get to the issue with mountains in Lebanon. You don't have an open flat area to open the Liwan to, so the Lebanese flip it. Now your Liwan, the open space is facing uphill. You puncture the back with a window. You have a view onto the valley. The fourth type of house, which is the Lebanese house par excellence, according to the author, is the central hall house. So what the central hall house basically does uh, in its first iteration, it keeps the bottom either a gallery house or a rectangular house, but on the second floor, it basically creates a central hall that's flanked on either side by numerous rooms. So if you can see the, the, the drawing in the center, 
you have rooms and you have a central hall. As it evolves, the central hall starts to translate to the outside and creates the triple arch. Um, so you have, you have basically a door in the center and two windows on the side. As it evolves further and further, you can create two central halls that kind of bisect each other in the center of the house. Now you have symmetry on all four sides. The very interesting about this house is this is the first time we finally start seeing the red tile roof. Again, this is possible in Lebanon because we have timber so we can build light roofs. Basically, we don't have heavy stones uh, on the last floor. Um, and this is what the Lebanese house evolves. Uh, one more type that I don't have listed here that basically he discusses briefly is the combination type. So all these houses basically evolved over time, but they were added onto, they were modified, they were expanded. So you'll definitely see mutts, uh, different variations of them all. Um, if you're interested in learning more about architecture past the 18th and the 19th century, when there's more Ottoman influence, more French influence, um, you can look at the first three books that I have listed on here. Um, these are books that talk about uh, conservation and uh, restoration or reconstruction of houses, predominantly in Beirut after the Civil War, but they do discuss the foreign influence uh, on the housing. And the last book, The Houses of Lebanon, is a more updated version uh, of the book that Frederick put together. And that's it for me today. If you guys have any questions, um, you can always ping me. That's great. Um, so we don't have any questions in the chat. So Mo, if it's okay with you, I'll, I'll keep your time until the end unless one question immediately emerges. That was awesome. Um, so Dahlia, is it you next? So hi to everyone who doesn't know me. I'm Dahlia. Um, and today, oh, I'm talking from New York City. <laughs> um, and today I'm going to be talking briefly about um, the Abandoned Fairgrounds by Oscar Neymar, I think that's how I say it. Um, for those who don't know what the Abandoned Fairgrounds are, they are this like, this in Tripoli, Lebanon, which the reason why I took interest in this is because that's where my family is from. And um, I had seen it as a kid and we used to walk around and like see it from afar, but I never went inside and really knew knew what it was. So I took an interest in it. And um, today the article that sort of pushed me to explore this topic um, is this article, which is the Abandoned Fairgrounds. Um, and it's by uh, this online publication that's called, um, I think you say like Herschazin, I don't know how to say it, Herschazin, not sure. But it's an online magazine that solely explores like architecture and design projects and, and design from the MENA area, which is like Middle East, North Africa, and stuff like that. So um, this is sort of where I started and then kind of did a bunch of research, which I'll, the links are later. But um, as you can see here on the right, this is like the leading photo, which looks crazy and apocalyptic already. Um, so let's uh, get into it. So kind of, as I said, this fairground is, when you see it now, it is a, it looks like futuristic, like spacey, and it's abandoned. There's nothing there. Like be, besides, you know, every once in a while, people will go for runs there. There's a lot of teenagers skating, people play like, but there's essentially nothing there. And it's this huge abandoned area in Tripoli, Lebanon, which if you've been to Tripoli, Lebanon, the fact that this is there makes no sense. It looks almost like misplaced. 
It looks strange. It feels like an alien dropped this area off and left and that was it. So this fairground area, which is huge, it's 10,000, I can't say this word, so I'm just not gonna say it, which is like 250 acres, but it's like 15 structures in this huge open area. I know Mikey's laughing. Um, and this, this bear, Bearground has been abandoned since the 1970s, which is crazy. So no one is taking care of it. No one is really doing anything for it. And it's just there. Um, and this area was expected to accommodate 2 million visitors. And um, it's, it's kind of sad almost that it's not accommodating really anybody or anything at this point. Um, though the primary structures were completed, nothing was actually fitted out. So it's almost like there are these hollow shells and they're all there, but there's nothing inside. It's just there. Like the structures are just living in this big open space and no one's really doing anything with it. And here in the image, we can see one of the structures, um, just like this open theater area and we'll uh, continue and look at some more. So for context, in the 1960s, Lebanon was bumping. It was like the golden era, lots of amazing stuff was going on. Um, there was like a lot of tourism, a lot of aristocrats coming in and just Lebanon was really having its, its shining moment at this time. Um, and Oscar Neymar, who was a famous at the time Brazilian architect was really trending. So people wanted him to do work. People wanted to hire him, et cetera. And um, he actually got hired. I'm going to read it, but he was asked to sort of ideate what this fairground could look like um, by the Lebanese government. The ambassador, I think, for Brazil from Lebanon is the one who asked. And so they sort of presented to him as like a project, like, what can you do with this? And um, he ended up actually designing it and doing it and going forth with it. And Neymar, as I said, was a modernist architect who also helped build stuff in New York. And he was like getting his name really, you know, he was becoming a well-renowned person. So everybody wanted him. Um, at the time, you know, this development was meant to really symbolize cultural and social advancement. You know, there was, as I said, Lebanon was going through a really great time and they wanted to sort of capitalize on this sort of like peaceful or, you know, sort of time. And um, now it's kind of ironic or almost sad that it's actually just like abandoned. Like I said, it's unsafe to be there. Things are like falling apart. It's been neglected um, and it's really at risk of crumbling. And it's, it's just, as I said, it's just sort of living in this space. So if we can, if we look at these images, we can see, um, this is really like typical of, uh, um, his style, I guess. So he really worked with, um, simple concrete. Um, and originally these structures were supposed to live sort of around water. So there's no water there now. It's just like, empty but these structures were supposed to be able to stand alone but also be like water around it like reflecting pools to these huge ginormous structures um and back to Neymar's style profile so like we said he was a like a modernist architect and he actually was the person who built for those of you who don't know he had built Brasilia which was like created in Brazil um like this futuristic city and to become the capital of Brazil so he got essentially hired because of based on that work. And he worked solely with really like reinforced concrete. And um, the things that he worked with and inspired him were like 
curves, which we can see the shapes here. There's a lot of curves and domes um, and like not no straight or jagged edges or lines. And he was really inspired by the female form and the woman, a woman's body is what he said. So maybe you can see like the inspiration through um, his structures. Um, and as I said, he really didn't like stark straight lines and you can look at his work and not really see anything that was like in that way. So, like I said, there were 15 structures, which is a lot of structures, but just some of the things were um, an open air theater, there was an exhibition space, um, he even built like housing units because it was actually intended to have people live, you know, live in like sort of breathe and make this area their home and that was the intention. So there were housing units and homes that were separate as well as like in community spaces. Um, and then that was dome theater is like my favorite thing. It's like, it was supposed to be a space for experimental dance and music. And when you go in, it was, it's just like hollow. There's nothing in there, but the acoustics are insane. Um, so yeah, these are just a few of the things. So back to sort of the history, this space was actually inaccessible, even though, like I said, it was commissioned in the sixties and then, you know, it started being built in the early seventies. It was inaccessible from 1975 to 1990 because of the Civil War. Um, so it actually turned into, like I said, even though the structures were built, it turned into instead of a place where it was meant to be like the International Expo Center and like fairgrounds, it was used as like a barracks for the Syrian military. So kind of became a place where obviously we know like war was going on and unrest and stuff like that. And um, later it was renamed um, the Rashid Karam International Fair after the Prime Minister. Um, and in 2006, the fairground was added to the World Monuments Funds list of 100 most endangered sites. So people are trying to raise money and save this space because it's so unique, but it's falling, it's literally falling apart. Um, and now it's on the UNESCO's list for sites being considered for nomination to the World Heritage List, which is amazing. And that's sort of the hope for this space um, because they don't want it to just perish and go away because it's such a unique, it's such a unique space and such an odd area. You know, it's crazy that this is in Tripoli. So the future right now is a little unknown. Um, I guess right now with what's going on in Lebanon, people don't really know, but um, it is something you can go like walk around and still see and it's open. So um, I went last year and it was really amazing. So for those of you who are interested in learning more, there's some really great links. I learned a lot and there's really amazing, beautiful imagery. I would say that um, this first article, which is here on the right, is from this um, architecture journal. And it really goes into understanding like the importance of these structures in Lebanon and the time and the geopolitical sense and understanding why it was important for Lebanon to try to make this space in this time period of the 1960s. So I really recommend all of these, but especially this journal right here. If you have time, it's a, a great uh, thing to read about. So that's it. Um, if you want to talk to me, you can. That's me. Um, so yeah, just follow me or whatever, and thanks for listening. Thanks, Alia. That was amazing. Um, let's keep the questions till the end, um, if that's OK. So I believe Tamada is next. That was great, Dalia. Such nerdery. Hi, everyone. My name is Tomada. I'm based in Kuwait. And for my Africa Forward, I was just kind of on the internet, and I found this article by Vice that was titled, Meet This Guy from Yemen Who Dreams of Skating in His War-Torn City Again. And 
the reason I was just interested in the topic of the skate scene in Yemen was, I mean, I, I found it very unexpected. But also I remember like when I was a teenager, skating was sort of this new phenomenon in the Arab world. It, at least it felt really new, it wasn't that common. And so seeing all these little skate scenes emerging in places you wouldn't necessarily expect to me is really quite interesting. Um, the article is from Vice. Uh, I feel like most people know Vice, but if you don't, it's a Canadian magazine that began with coverage of these like subcultures and like, a lot of uncensored underground content. It's like, um, it's a multi, it's a multi-platform media company now, so it's hardly underground anymore, but that's how it started. Okay, so we're going to set the scene. Uh, that's where the article starts, is with this kid called Ryan Sanabani. He's 14, he lives in Yemen, but he visits his mom in Spain, which is where he, where she lives, and he finds a skateboard, and he's hooked. He gets bit by the skate bug, he's like, I love this, and he brings the skateboard back to Yemen, and initially, no one had ever seen the skateboard. They, they thought this was the strangest thing ever, and from a lot of the interviews that I, I saw with him, it seemed like this might have potentially been the first skateboard in Yemen. Um, while people thought it was really strange, like over time, more and more kids started skating with him, and eventually he founded the skate crew called the Arabian Skaters. I mean, over time, there was about 60 of them by the, within a few years, and they called themselves the Arabian Skaters because they came not just from Yemen, but about a quarter of them came from all these different Arab countries and their parents had moved there for a variety of reasons. They were part of like a very small middle class in Yemen prior to the civil war. There were not, there's the Yemeni middle class is, is quite small. Um, but surprisingly they spoke, at least I found it kind of surprising, they spoke, uh, they spoke perfect English for the most part. They had traveled, uh, it was predominantly it started out as this core group of kids from Yemen that had connections to other countries and they, that's how they initially became interested in skateboarding. But then the local scene became like much larger and because of how inaccessible it was to get skateboards, they had this very communal atmosphere within the crew. So if someone was able to get a skateboard, a new skateboard, the old skateboard would go to someone else. If someone was able to order uh, like, an, like parts for a skateboard, they would help out with other people. So the, the grew really organically and it became like this, like a genuine community. Um, in the, some of the interviews, the, one of the quite cool things that they talk about is um, in Yemen, it's really common uh, to participate in hot smoking sessions for men. So the numbers from like the World, from the world Health Organization is sort of like 90% of men in Yemen spend four hours a day in hot smoking sessions. It's a very common cultural uh, phenomenon, but it does have a, quite a few negative consequences for these younger kids. And they were really adamant about wanting to kind of stay away from that. They found this other way to channel their energy. And so in their interviews, one of the things that they were kind of known as, as a skate crew, was that they didn't smoke hot at all. They were always out skateboarding. And that was, that was, their, that was their coping mechanism. That was what they did. And they kind of became known in Yemen as like, that, that's, the, that's the skate crew that, that of this is what they do with their free time. And I find it really interesting because you see the skate scene emerge in lots of these areas where there's a surprising amount of, you see them surprisingly popping out in these areas where there's a lot of conflict. Whether you're in Yemen and there's, you're dealing with the conflict and civil war or you're talking about Palestine, which is under occupation, these skateboarding scenes for young people tend to emerge and in all of these 
interviews in all of these uh, nonprofits that really you know, support this, the main things that they talk about is that it creates this sense of community. A lot of the kids feel like it gives them identity and it gives them freedom. Um, it's this stress relieving outlet that focuses their energy and it's an opportunity for self-development. Uh, they, they see it as a chance for them to actually get good at something when there's not a lot of opportunities to participate in something like that. And for these younger people who you know, are attracted to it, there's this uh, stereotypical kind of identity for skateboarders of rebellion and being a bit of an outsider. And like this is, a pod, this is for them a positive way of being able to feel that. And it's a, like a, almost a new form of nonviolent civil disobedience from their perspective. And you see that echoed in all the other skate scenes. So these are two groups in Palestine. And it's really similar what they talk about in Palestine versus what they talk about in Yemen in terms of why they are so attracted to skating as a scene. Um, obviously, the civil war has changed a lot of things. Um, the, it's pretty much impossible for a lot of these kids to skateboard now. And in his interview, Ryan talks about how you know, a lot of the people with privilege were able to leave, but the ones that are still in Yemen are not able to skateboard right now either because of parts or obviously because there's a war and there's just other priorities for the most part. Um, one thing that I did find quite interesting is that when the war had first broken out, you know, they had about 50 members in their crew and then they went down to 20 and then they went down to almost nothing. But there was this period of time where there was a lull in the conflict and almost oh. immediately their numbers went back up to like 60. Yeah, they, they were very, it seems like as soon as there's this lull in, there's a lull in the conflict and there's a peace, a lot of them are really, really eager to get back into it. It has a really important place for them in their identity. Um, Ryan right now is 28. He lives in the U.S. And one really cool thing that happened was that he was able to represent Yemen in the skateboarding Olympic qualifiers in Singapore. Skateboarding is now a sport for the Olympics, which is a brand new thing. And his goal is that as soon as Yemen is safe, he really wants to go back and start a skateboarding federation and an Olympic team. Prior to the war, he had already been looking for sponsors. And so, you know, now he sees that because Olympi skateboarding is this Olympic sport, it provides not only an outlet for kids during their adolescence, but it is something that can be really productive moving forward because it is, it is an Olympic sport now. Um, and I think that that creates a lot of opportunities for these kids in, in these areas that, that find um, sort of a way to focus their energy and still be able to accomplish something with that. Um, if you're interested in the topic of skating as a scene in different parts of the Middle East, there's actually, it's, it's kind of exploding everywhere. Uh, Ryan is one of several Arabs who competed in the Olympic qualifiers. The other one is Nassim, I, I, I might butcher the last name a little bit, Nassim Lechab. Lechab. Um, he's one half of Morocco's skateboarding team and he's considered sort of the first professional skateboarder in Morocco. He has a great interview with Free Skateboard Magazine and there's like a lot of videos of skate tours through Morocco. It's become a very hotspot, so to speak. Um, and of course, Seven Hills Skate in Amman, Jordan is a skate team that was, it was a park that started with the founder, Hamad Zakaria, and he was able to recruit a bunch of different volunteers and they built a park in 18 days, which is ridiculously fast. And it creates classes for both locals and for refugees. It's, it fills this gap of a lack of public recreation for young people. And 
this the sentiments that you hear, whether you're in uh, Palestine or or Amman or Yemen, are, are very similar across the different scenes. Um, in yet in Palestine, if you're interested in skating in Palestine, there's these two short documentaries. Uh, very, they're like ten minutes long each. Um, that is about the skate scene in Palestine, and there's a West Bank skateboarding uh, scene called Rolling with the Punches. And so, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of different links if you're interested in the topic. Uh, I think at this point, it seems like skating has become part of the cultural zeitgeist and that it has a really important place for young people, especially in areas of conflict, which is quite, you know, I find that quite interesting. And that was kind of the topic that I wanted to cover. So that is my Africa presentation. Let's see if there's any. Thanks, Amada. Um, you can paste your contact info in the, in the chat. In fact, I'd actually tell all of you guys to paste your contact info in the chat if anyone wants to reach out to you. Um, as a plug, which Farah brought up in the chat, um, Hamad Zakaria was on Africa Conversations, and our conversation with him will be up on the YouTube page and on the podcast soon. He is a friend of the program. Um, okay, great. Batul, it's all up to you. Take us on. This is a foreword on a lecture that's called Understanding Egyptian Cuisine and Culture. And the presentation or the lecture is actually by Amy Riolo, who is a, uh, an author, a chef, and a food historian. So a lot of interesting things bundled up in one person. Um, uh, the lecture is actually very, very interesting. I recommend everybody to go watch it. Um, it covers pretty much the history, the intertwined history of Egypt uh, with food and the overall region from prehistoric Egyptian time until modern time. But for the sake of this presentation, I'm just covering ancient Egypt because it's just a lot of delicious stuff, but just also a lot of information. So uh, one of the things she says in the lecture that I found really interesting, she says, when I went to Egypt, I found that there were ties between the anthropology that evolved in cuisine and the history and that with the Mediterranean and the world at large. And if you look on the map on the right, uh, Egypt is located in that black square in the center, which is perfectly positioned between Africa, the Middle East and Europe, and to a certain extent, the Asian continent. So Egypt was really well positioned to influence these cultures as well as be influenced by them. And yes, this lecture is about food, but also, um, as Riola says, it's an invitation to look at history from a different angle. And what she says, cultural periods, which is an alternative way of understanding history and which is not based on um, conflict or, you know, like instead of saying, for example, um, in the Badarian period, uh, which spanned from 4400 to 3800 BC, and which is modern day Asyut in Egypt, instead of describing that period as the time when the Nubians were fighting the Egyptians or someone was fighting with the Persians, we actually use cultural mark, excuse me, we use cultural markers such as wheat and barley were formed um, and the rituals of burial that we discovered later on indicate a, some formalized belief in the afterlife. So really cultural periods is a very, I thought it was a very interesting way of looking at history um, without really going into the bloodsheds. Um, and also food is part of those cultural markers as well, I should mention. So there were approximately 19 different cultures that influenced the uh, Egyptian cuisine over time until modern day. And in turn, the Egyptian cuisine influenced a bunch of different cultures as well. Um, some of them are the Lebanese, the Sudanese, obviously, uh, for geographic proximity, 
the Arabian cuisine in general, the French, Italian, Indian, and Spanish cuisines. Uh, so how, how did it start? How did the ancient Egyptian empire get built up? Well, for starters, um, the Nile, which is the river that flows from the south of Egypt up to the north, um, flooded naturally twice per year, which kind of provided a natural irrigation system for the whole land, um, which wasn't something that other countries within the region at the time had uh, access to. They had to build aqueducts and invest a lot in infrastructure to get um, good irrigation systems. So because the Nile flooded twice per year, um, it really um, boosted Egypt's agriculture. So Egypt was able to really um, harvest and grow a lot of different products and use those to trade them within the region and thus ensuring they built a very strong and powerful empire uh, from those early days on. So they uh, established trade deals or kind of trade relations between Europe, between them and Europe and the Middle East and Africa, as we saw on the map earlier. And now we get to the food, the good part. Uh, to start off with lentils, um, in a lot of Middle Eastern cultures today, there's still there's a tradition of eating lentils on New Year's because it's believed to promote prosperity. And some cookbooks and culture historians, they say that people do that um, because lentils look like coins. But actually it's because lentils were coins. They were some form of currency that was traded at the time in exchange for other types of goods. Um, and I, th I thought that was interesting because now uh, we kind of consider lentils as this inex inexpensive or cheap source of, you know, nutrition. Um, but at the time, it was a backbone for building the ancient Egyptian civilization. Uh, next is the spices, obviously a very important uh, part of uh, the cuisine. Um, at the time, which is around, we're talking about 3000 BCE right now, um, spices were very rare in the region, but in Egypt, they were heavily available uh, for royalty and less so by the commoners or for the commoners, um, but they were still accessible for commoners, but in other parts of the region, they were almost unheard of. Um, they were also used in embalming for the pharaohs and like the royal families. And something interesting that Riola mentions in the lecture is um, later historians, when they uh, discovered Ramses II's tomb, uh, which dates back to 2800 BCE, they discovered black pepper in the tomb. And this is kind of mind blowing because at the time, black pepper was only available in China. So if you think about it, the Egyptians had established trade relations with China 2800 year, like BCE. It's like so far, I don't know, it's just, it's, I found that very interesting. Um, and then they also invested in crops a lot. So obviously, like we said, uh, because of the natural irrigation system that the Nile provided them, they uh, had a very diversified range of crops. And so, for example, Fulmedemis, which is the top right picture, uh, is still used in Egypt until today and a lot of other um, parts and like countries in the Levant area. Um, and it's really one of the oldest agricultural crops in the world. Um, the also, date palms uh, have been growing in Egypt for over 5,000 years now. And uh, fruits and vegetables, there was a wide variety in ancient Egypt at the time. Uh, so, for example, cucumbers and figs and pomegranate um, and grapes, all of that was uh, grown in ancient Egypt. 
And uh, one more note on the abundance of um, this, um, uh, on the abundance of all these different types of agriculture crops is that it led to innovation in the cuisine. So I wanna quickly jump to the third bullet point here, which is the Arabic word for bread is Aish in Egypt, um, which is synonymous with the word life. And I kind of always knew that, but I never really stopped to think about it. But um, she makes a point to mention it in the lecture. And I thought that was really interesting because it just really shows how important wheat and bread is for the Egyptian culture. It's synonymous with the word bread. Um, and also uh, at the time, it was very customary on the Pharaoh's birthday to bake a special type of uh, bread uh, with special seasoning. And it's believed that it's uh, the origin of the birthday cake, modern day birthday cake. So that was pretty interesting too. Um, also different types of breads from the uh, Museum of Agriculture in Egypt. You can see a lot of the stuff we still use until today, like there's donut shaped bread, um, French baguette. And if you do this the right way, um, if you kind of follow like the same method that traditionally have, has been used, it's kind of a way to reconnect with ancestors from like thousands and thousands of years ago. So it's a very interesting perspective to keep when preparing food. Salt was also very important, but for the sake of time, I'm just gonna quickly um, go through this. Um, there were high taxes imposed on salt because it was very much in demand. Um, so people used an interesting way of kind of smuggling salt um, by salting fish. And there wasn't uh, any taxes on fish, so they were able to transport salt between regions and avoid paying tariffs on them. And an honorable mention to the Nubian civilization um, because they kind of get glanced over when we talk about ancient Egypt. Um, the Nubians are an indigenous group of people. Um, they belong to southern Egypt and northern Sudan. And they also contributed to the uh, food history um, of the area significantly. So there are some uh, Nubian spices that we still use until today, like allspice, cinnamon, uh, paprika, turmeric, bay leaves. Uh, also, they were very common in, uh, in Nubian cuisine. Um, and the dried hibiscus leaves that are made today, that are used today to make karkadeh, if, if any of you guys has tried karkadeh, it's kind of, it's not my favorite drink, but it's apparently very beneficial and, you know, some people grow a taste for it. Um, and last but not least, um, more resources. If you guys are interested, uh, Amy Riolo actually wrote a book. It's, it's called The Nile Style. And the, it has recipes and historical background of different types of foods that were prepared at the time, uh, over time in Egypt. So um, it's a very cool resource to have if you kind of want to live like a pharaoh for uh, a dinner or two. And more articles here. And the last article is actually about uh, the Armenian cuisine. It kind of takes a similar look at the Armenian cuisine over time. Uh, and I, I thought that was interesting because the same thing that Amy Riolo did for uh, Egyptian cuisine, um, this uh, historian, another person, his name is Giborg, um, I'm not gonna try to pronounce the last name, but uh, he does the same thing for Armenian cuisine. Um, he traces it back over history and how different components of the Armenian cuisine influenced other cultures. And that's me for contact information. Thank you. Thanks, Batul, that was great. I'm going to finish up and if there is uh, a specific question in the chat that emerges, 
if you haven't given us feedback already, please do so. It will take a second um, by going to hackpicketed.com slash was this good. Um, if you're interested in giving a presentation like this in the future, um, you can go to hackpicketed.com slash workshop. Everyone who presented today went through one of our workshops and it takes about maybe a week or two to go from the workshop to presenting. Dalio was in the workshop literally a week ago. So um, it can be a quick turnaround and the idea is to have you contribute, um, have you be a part of the sort of Africa family by um, asking a question, getting involved, getting your feet wet, and then hopefully after that you can develop an uh, even deeper presentation and contribute to these like library entries that we're putting together. Um, so please consider uh, attending one of the upcoming workshops. Uh, as I said at the beginning, um, if you uh, really are inspired by what we do and want to help us continue doing this and continue building this free online uh, archive and this uh, community that cares about critical thinking and curiosity and self-expression and freedom of information in a region that very desperately needs all those things, um, consider uh, supporting us. So thanks Tamara, thanks Batul, thanks Dalia, thanks Hamad. This was really, really fun. Thanks everybody. I'll stay on the call for a few more minutes if there are any other questions about Afikra, but um, this was great. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have new episodes coming every single week. Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at afikra.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and stay curious.